Soren Kierkegaard says, what is a poet? A poet is someone who screams and cries in agony, but whose lips are so formed that when they cry out, beautiful music is formed. Mm. And so we say to the poet, sing to us again. So the poet beautifully confronts us with our own repressed truth, but in a way that's beautiful, that's exquisite, that kind of like that helps me work through it. And then I come out feeling all the better for it. Hey everyone, it's Laura, and I've got someone here with me today. Hey Laura, it's great to be here. <laughs> uh, Michael is joining me, our executive producer and the co-creator, co-dreamer of this show, and we're here to raid the archives and bring the most memorable moments from the show that we have and highlight the themes that we've heard this year. It's been six months since we started the show. And this is what our 26th or 27th episode, 26th, yeah, uh, something like that. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, again, time is just a flat circle. We're just trying to feel like <laughs> the, the weirdness of COVID time keeps going on just in a new and a different way. Um, but there's just been like that little piece from Peter Rollins we heard right there at the beginning and, and so many things coming up there. The, it's been an extraordinary opportunity to listen to generous, brilliant people and mm. soak in these conversations and find some some elements that we thought would be a great way to share to wrap up 2021 uh, the themes will become really obvious, I think, to folks of sort of what's on our minds culturally, because it, it was amazing how consistent some of the the conversations were just from what what was going on in people's lives and, and what they wanted to talk about. And so we're just really excited to share this with folks. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe uh, this episode will help you find or this this show will help you find episodes you might have missed uh, coming up, we've got words that will carry us into the new year from Africa Brooke, Annie Grace, Rob Bell, Peter Rollins. And up first, we have Young Pueblo, who goes goes by Young Pueblo, but his name is actually Diego Perez. And, oh, yeah, we he was one of our first four episodes, and what an extraordinary human being he was. I still think about that conversation a lot. And the word that comes to me every time is equanimity, equanimity, equanimity. He's just got this peace, uh, this peaceful radiance about him. And I'm just going to let you listen. People are always looking for one moment. And, and you know, I'm, I'm always like, it's like, it's a series of moments, you know, and sure. it's all these things building up together. But no, there wasn't like a specific moment. What I really remember from it was that it was grueling. It was really hard. Like <laughs> I'd never been silent for 10 days and I never meditated for hours and hours and hours a day. So everything that I was doing was just brand new. I think the real moment came after the retreat, just like the few days after. I feel like my mind had lost weight. Like I just had mm. lost this like burden that I was carrying in my mind. I didn't feel like fully healed or anything, but I felt better. I felt like I can think more clearly. I can feel more compassion, like in my mind, in my heart. And for you can, or for everything? For me and for everything. And that yeah. wasn't something that was like really strong within me before at all. I felt like it was funny because I could, in the past, I could feel much more compassion for like the world. Like as an organizer, you have to have a bit of a love for the world to like do this type of work. But yep. I had less compassion for individuals. And now this yeah. was like a switch was like, oh, I have, you know, the, the love for the world is there, but there's more love for individuals that wasn't huh. really there before. But that feeling of my mind just being less dense just motivated me to keep going back and to keep putting myself through that difficult process because I was getting results that I had never seen before that I didn't, you know, results that I didn't even really believe because I was like, what's going on here? Like, am I suppressing? Is like, is this a new type of lying or something like that? Because mm -hmm. I wanted to be really Am I chasing something? Yeah, exactly. But then the tests came later, like during difficult moments that would happen in life. And I would notice like, oh, there's no suppression here. It's just the reaction has decreased. The reaction mm -hmm. isn't as intense as it used to be. So there's something here. And that's like literally what 
the goal of that technique is equanimity. And that's what I was gaining in my life. It's just that equanimity was so foreign that I didn't even know how to like deal with it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny that you say that because when I read your words, that is the essence of what I feel in your words is equanimity. That's the word that always comes to mind mm. is equanimity. And that's not even, it's the energy in the words. And I think as a writer and as a avid reader, you can read the same thing written by many different people, but it will make you feel differently based on who wrote it and what's actually transmitting into those words. So equanimity, it, it did make its way into you because I think that's what you transmit among other things. Thank you. That's so kind of you to say, yeah, I'm, I have this relationship in my life with impermanence and equanimity. Impermanence is the most fundamental thing that I'm trying to understand in this life and equanimity is what I'm trying to develop. And mm. between the two, I try to live my life. <laughs> but yeah, equanimity is like, it's real happiness, that balance of mind to not be constantly reacting, to not be constantly craving or having aversion, to just see reality as it is and allow it to flow the way it's flowing. I've seen you mention that your wife meditates with you now. Did she just come right along on the what? Because this, I think, is a challenge for people too in partnerships, where one person grows at a different time. Yeah, yeah. And you know, how has that looked for you? It looked exactly like that. We grew at very different speeds. We were both immediately interested in taking a course, but then I was the one who started sitting two hours a day before she did, like months before, like I think like nine months before she did. And afterwards, it just kind of clicked inside her and she decided to, you know, come along for the ride as well. Because she had to go through her own process. She had to figure out like, was this for her? Because even at that time, I think we were like looking at other styles of meditation, like should mm -hmm. we, you know, take this route or that route? But then when it clicked that, you know, Vipassana was, was for the both of us, like let's, let's take it seriously. And similarly, there was like a point when we both started realizing that smoking weed, drinking alcohol just like wasn't serving us anymore. But she was ready to give all that up before I was, like mm -hmm. a few months before. And then mm -hmm. like I remember feeling bad that she was able to give it up so quickly. You, and then you, it I, was harder for you. It was hard. Yeah, it was hard to not be like, to not have someone by my side doing the same thing. Yeah. And also because I, I did want to give it up, but I wasn't quite ready to. But I was so grateful for the patience that she gave me and just like letting me go through my own process. And then like a few months passed and then it clicked and I was like, okay, I'm ready now. And I'm ready to really give it up and put my foot down. And yeah, we just we just grow at different speeds even to this day. Yeah, yeah, it, it, and of course we do, of course we do. Mm -hmm. So what is the relationship to you between substances and meditation? What led you to the decision that it doesn't belong in your life anymore? Yeah, that's a good question. So at that point, I had already like dwindled the amount of intoxicants that I had taken to like a very small amount. Mm -hmm. But I had started meditating two hours a day before I gave up intoxicants. So I was like doing both simultaneously. And hour was, in the morning, hour in the evening. Exactly. But what I would notice was that when I would go like periods of times without consuming intoxicants or without, you know, taking alcohol, my mind felt sharper. And my mind felt a lot less dense, but I had this inkling. I was like, when you go to a retreat, you're there for 10 days and you're obviously not drinking or smoking or anything. And right. your mind just like clears up. And then it has this like beautiful, pristine quality that supports your awareness, supports your equanimity, supports you to go even deeper yeah. and to gain more wisdom. And at that point, I was like, okay, I think this isn't for me anymore because one, like I'm not really getting a lot. And this is, you know, people live their own lives and they go through their own journeys. So I'm yeah. not trying to impose my life onto others. Yeah, I'm just no. talking about my story. Mm -hmm. But um, it just clicked that like I'm getting such little from smoking now. Like I think in the past when I was younger, I was actually gaining a lot because it was like some system that was helping me just not get overwhelmed by everything that was happening. Yeah. But then it quickly became a bad habit that just helped me escape from it without dealing with it. And the, the escape wasn't really real. But the moment I stopped, you know, I just felt like that was like a key pivotal moment of like an inner renaissance began. You know, when I, when I like stopped <laughs> drinking and smoking, continued meditating two hours a day, my mind just went through such deep mental and physical healing, like on the mental level of my contents of the mind, but the yeah. physical level of my mind, like there was just so much more clarity flowing. Mm -hmm. 
And I was able to take that and just make good use of it in meditating. And um, it really just radically changed the relationship my wife and I had. Yeah, I bet. I always remember this story that I heard, you know, Wayne Dyer, he's like an old school sort of self-help guy, maybe consider spiritual guy, I don't know. He talks about, he studied with Maslow and he was drinking consistently, but never say problematically. No one would say he was an alcoholic or anything like that, but he consistently had a couple beers every night after Mm -hmm. his long runs. And Maslow eventually said, like, I know the levels of consciousness that you want to reach. And if you want to get there, alcohol just has no place in your life. And I remember hearing (laughs) that long before I got sober, and there were many other reasons I had to get sober, you know, survivalish type of reasons, but Mm -hmm. that really stuck with me. And, And the reason I'm bringing that up is because beyond sort of the immediate effects that alcohol or drugs or intoxicants can have on our day to day life. There's like another layer that we don't really know of what's possible within ourselves, within our own minds. And it feels like that's part of what you've discovered about mm. yourself is, is that, call it the hidden 25% or I don't know what you call it. It's like we don't even know what's possible. I don't know. You know, I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because I've never really gone to speak about it in depth. It's funny because it feels like we're talking about a secret, but um, it's <laughs> I like, know, we're like getting quieter. We're getting, yeah, we're getting like hushing <laughs> up. Um, so my, okay, so to be really honest, my experience was that I could feel the meditation making my mind lighter. It was just, mm-hmm. that's the word that I can use, like literally making it lighter. And then even when I would, you know, smoke marijuana, drink alcohol, or even take mushrooms, it mm-hmm. felt like the meditation had helped me go to a much subtler level. And then when I would take these things, it would bring me to a denser level. And it's funny because I remember when I was growing up and like the memes at the time and all the things that were around in social media, there was a lot about how marijuana and like psychedelics can help you make your mind very subtle. And I totally think that's true. But meditation just like for me personally, it just went so much deeper that when I did try those things in the past, again, after having started meditated, I was like, oh, this isn't for me anymore. Like, it's only bringing up the same type of intellectualized wisdom. And mm. whereas meditation was, you were gaining wisdom through direct experience. Ah, uh, see what I mean? So we also asked Diego to read from his latest book, Clarity and Connection. Here he is. Time does not heal all wounds. It just gives them space to sink into the subconscious, where they will continue to impact your emotions and behavior. What heals is going inward, loving yourself, accepting yourself, listening to your needs, addressing your attachments and emotional history, learning how to let go, and following your intuition. Three thoughts. Relationships normally start with two people wanting to treat each other well. Harm is caused when someone does not know how to properly manage their reactions to their emotions. If you think you are your emotions, then your words and actions will resemble your mental turbulence. In relationships, it is important to understand that the other person cannot fix your emotional problems. At best, they can support you as you uncover and process your own emotional history. There is no such thing as a perfect relationship, but there are incredible relationships in which the mutual connection and support are indescribably profound. remember Diego's latest book, Clarity and Connection. It's definitely something you want to have on your shelf. So up next, we have Africa Brooke, who was another one of our very first episodes. Uh, Laura, I know both of us had kind of honed in on her, somebody that we wanted to have in early. What kind of sticks out 
for you with this conversation? This is one of those that I've thought about so often since we had it. And what sticks out most to me is there's this theme that I think we're going to be talking about for the next five years, a really big theme in our culture about who gets to have a public voice and what is the responsibility of having a public voice and what choices are you actually making when you do that. We're in this totally different time than we were even 10 years ago where anyone, anyone can choose to have a public voice more or less. And so Africa talks about self-censorship and self-sabotage. And then what I have thought about since then was that there's two different realms. There's this internal private life that we need to cultivate of honesty, honesty with self, honesty with others. And then there's another realm of this public sphere. And what does it mean to not censor oneself, to not sabotage oneself, to not, to, to not hold back? Uh, and I think those are two very different things. So Africa has a beautiful way about her. She drops a lot of seeds here in this conversation that, like I said, I think we're going to be talking about for a really long time. Where do you start with people? And I'm asking because I want to offer maybe a starting point for people to think about this. Yes. So it always looks different for everyone, right? It always looks different for everyone because, as you just said, self-censorship is not just about, for example, I have this really controversial opinion and I really want to say it, but I'm worried about the repercussions of that. For some people, they have had to censor themselves because they grew up in an abusive environment. So therefore they have to tread on eggshells. Otherwise something is going to happen, right? So it it shows up in so many different ways. So one of the first things that I do is to really get clarity on exactly what that individual means when they say I am self-censoring. What do they actually mean? So before I make an assumption of what that might look like, right? Instead of me making an assumption that it's about an opinion, because that's where we could go straight away, right? It's really understanding how would that individual articulate exactly what they're experiencing without necessarily using the terms self-sabotage or self-censorship. What are they actually struggling with internally? And then we always go from there because it looks very different for everyone. I'm very interested in how you enter when someone says, I don't know what I think. I don't know how I feel. How do you respond to that? I just ask, is that really true? Yes. Because, <laughs> right, we always speak in absolutes, right? Even when we haven't done much self-reflection to really interrogate that belief, to really interrogate that narrative that we keep on saying, I don't know what I think. You know, is that really true? What I also like to do is to just make that as objective as possible, right? To really dissect what has just been said. So I might ask something like, okay, so in your day-to-day basis, you go through 24 hours a day and you don't think anything and you don't make any kind of decision. Is that really true? And then it's like, well, no, right? And then you start to really get even more specific. What are some of the things that happen in your 24 hours where you are required to think, you're required to trust yourself on some level? Because to make any kind of decision, even what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, am I going to sleep now? Am I going to watch this now? Am I going to write? Am I going to go to work? That requires you to make a decision. And to be able to make that decision, there is some level of self-trust. So when someone says, for example, I don't know how to trust myself. Most of the time they mean, I don't know how to trust myself when it comes to this specific thing, but they Mm -hmm. say it as if it's an absolute truth to absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. So again, I might ask something along the lines of, is that really true? So you're saying that you have never, ever trusted yourself to know when it's time to eat 
And it's like, actually, well, no, right? And then it always goes from there. And then we go as deep as we need to and really start to understand the psychology of that, really start to look at what is the belief system? What are the beliefs that they are taking as an absolute truth that need to be interrogated? Something like if I were to tell the truth about how I feel in this moment, this would happen. Yes. So it's dangerous to think what I think, perhaps, is another way of saying it. Yes, exactly. And have you experienced that? Yes. I'm thinking of it in two ways. You know, there's the in my sort of personal life and then as a public person. In my personal life, that's where I had to learn first that it was not only okay to say what I think, feel what I feel. That's one layer, not that it's just okay to. Meaning there are shadow parts of me that I include everything, that that no emotion is wrong, no thought is on its face wrong. That alone was massive. For example, I don't like my husband. I'm disgusted by my friend. You know, all the ways that we're internally conflicted all the time because that's what it means to be human and that that is the nature of humanity and not some error or some comment on our morality or that we are depraved because we have what we call icky thoughts <laughs> you know so so there's that level and i had to go through that and what really brought me to that was my drinking and and having to accept these really ugly, difficult things that I had actually done. And to go, does that mean I'm a terrible person? Or was I trying to get my needs met? And that was a whole layer. I found that I was not integrated until I could also express what was inside outwardly. There was just, to me, that pain was a big part of why I was drinking. I was inside feeling, thinking, living a certain way and outside doing something much different. There's tension in that that requires relief in my experience. So I literally had the thought, Africa, many times, if I tell the truth about who I am and what I've done, well, I, I can't. I'd rather die. Like, I'd really thought that, that. That's not possible for me. Maybe it's possible for other people. Great. They aren't me, and it will kill me, and it will kill other people, Right. I wouldn't want to live in this world because I would be so ashamed. <laughs> I wouldn't survive the repercussions of that. And that to me was it was the central part of sobriety and still is. Right? And it's a process and and I have so much to say about that. I think what happens on an individual level always shows up collectively. And so what I see you doing is not calling it out, but bringing that to the surface and allowing people to think what they think and feel what they feel. So talk about that too, like how you, how you actually listen to yourself when you're taking in information, how you know what intuition is versus the voice of, say, fear. Yes. Oh, that's good. This is something that I share quite often, and I will continue to share this, to really emphasize that there is a difference between censoring yourself, which is always from a place of fear. It's very different from being mindful of your speech, being considerate with your words, right? Yes. And to, to be able to do that, to be mindful of your speech, to be considerate with your words, it requires you to be in a mode of self-reflection, it doesn't have to be an extended period of time. It doesn't have a time frame, but you need to create space for self-reflection. So that is the difference. Whereas when you're censoring yourself, it's not really from a place of self-reflection because you're reacting to a pattern that has been in place for a long time, a pattern that is fear-based. Let's say you know that you have something to say and you still have this feeling that you're going to be in trouble. What if it goes wrong? What if I'm misunderstood? But because you've taken even just a moment to reflect and to assess the situation, then you make a conscious decision to say, actually, no, it's really important for me to say this right now. And you can still feel the fear. This is why I always also advocate for discomfort, because I think it's an essential part of growth. 
whether you want to accept it or not, it's always going to be there. So you could still be yes. mindful of your speech. You could still be in a mode of self-reflection and know that it's really important and sometimes even right for you to express this and still feel discomfort, which I believe is very different from pain or fear. Well, there's discomfort either way. Yeah. The bargain you're making or the <laughs> the options you're weighing are not no discomfort or discomfort their discomfort in the direction of one thing versus discomfort in the direction of something else. I've left so many things that you say and how you say them. You've said, basically, that if the cost of telling the truth about how you feel means X, Y, Z, I'm okay with that. I'm letting go of the need to be liked. How did you get there? to that point, because that, I think that is like the crossroad of liberation for so many people. Yeah. And it's really, really important as well to understand that you never want to quote unquote, get rid of the need to be liked completely. Well, you can't. (laughs) That's, I think the big lie, right? The give no fucks. That's the nuance there, right? That we are hardwired to care. We want to belong. We want community. We want to be surrounded by people. We need connection. That is a vital thing in terms of human existence. However, relying on external validation or relying on the acceptance of others to feel whole within yourself is always going to leave you feeling less than. Always. Right. It's like drinking. It might get you there. It might get you a quick hit of it, but it doesn't. It's not sustaining. Right. And for me, I would always say as well that it's a constant practice, which is why I look at every situation as a case by case. I don't say to myself or say to people that I have officially let go of the need to be liked and I have a certificate hanging behind me. You know, that's not how it fucking works. It will never matter again. (laughs) It's always a case by case. There will be moments when someone says something or I read a comment you know, and then before I can even intellectualize it and, you know, bring in logic and bring in reason and say, actually, this person has no idea who I am. I, I don't know who they are. Before that even happens, I will feel it. I feel like, oh, that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel nice. Why? Because I want to be liked. I do want to be accepted. Right. So I will allow myself to feel that, oh, OK, that doesn't feel really nice. But then I won't over engage with it. I believe that's the way to really navigate that space. This is why I say I choose to let go of the need to be liked. And I choose Mm. in every single moment. It's not an overarching truth and it's final. I choose in every single moment, every single interaction when I need it, right? So I allow myself to feel that moment of rejection, that moment of being misunderstood. But then I don't over-engage with it. And then I just move on. And it's the next moment, the next moment. And I'll be doing that for the rest of my life. So that's how I view it. So what is the cost of not telling the truth? Mm. To me, the cost of not telling the truth looks different in so many different areas of life. It depends on what the topic is or it depends on what we're talking about. But overall, to me, it's all about denying reality. I did that for way too long, for way, way, way too long. And it's a very dangerous thing to do. It's a silent killer. So for me, the cost of self-censorship is really, really high because it will always lead me to denying the reality of what actually is. So I'm always willing, always willing to get uncomfortable or to even make people uncomfortable without meaning to in order to say what is true or at least what is true to me. And to still understand that even what I consider to be true is not the absolute truth. And then make space for other truths, make make space for other perspectives so that I can learn, so that I can be challenged, you know, so yes. that I can experience other people's reality. That Africa Brook episode, one of the very first ones that we've released with Tell Me Something True. And if you've joined us in the last couple of months, Really hope you'll go back and and check that one out. There's, as Laura said, some really beautiful seeds in there. And, you know, uh, as we do, we like to remind you, you know, about why did we we build Tell Me Something True and why did we create an online community around all of this? And, and the hope is just to have a little sane spot on the Internet, which is a, 
thing that comes up a lot in that Africa Brook conversation. Um, we are extremely passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Um, we think it's very important to not be distracted with the hustle and the uh, shining up oneself that you've got to do to keep advertisers happy. Um, we just know that there's a difference between ad-free and ad-driven media. And we really want to make sure that this stays um, ad-free. And that's where you as a listener plays a really important role. Um, the membership group, TMST+, Plus, uh, makes all of it happen. As a TMST Plus member, you can join Laura for member-only events. You can send in questions for the guests. You can hear complete unedited interviews. You know, it's a way for you for just like $10 a month to make a difference in the world. If this was media that other people were going to make, they'd be doing it. But we've really set ourselves out on a mission to find extraordinary people who are leading extraordinary lives and have learned a little bit about it and have a passion for sharing it in a way that improves the lives of others. Not because they're a guru or an expert. This isn't about 12 tips on how to do something better. Uh, it's about people who are bringing their real world experience to the situation. Um, and we want to keep Tell Me Something True as, as an ad-free place for that. You can find the link for TMST Plus in the show description. We hope you'll head over to tmstpod.com right now and support this very strange little experiment uh, for, like I said, as little as $10 a month. And Laura, I know you've got a bunch of more tape lined up for us. Who's next? Yeah. So next up is one of my dear friends, Annie Grace. And I wanted to talk, although I've had many, many conversations with Annie, I really wanted to talk to her about something different than what we usually talk about, which is sobriety. And that's because she has something really powerful to say about what you just mentioned, hustle culture, and how we operate from a different place in our lives, a place that's not animated by scarcity and hustle mentality and never enough and more work and so on. And I think Annie, this conversation with Annie is one that we've got perhaps in our top few most, in most listened, but most feedback on, mm -hmm. because it's just something that we've also talked about other guests about, which you'll hear in a minute, but that needs to be heard. Like there's another way to live. There's another way to live and run your life. And Annie's got some amazing thoughts on that. There's a, a relationship between growth and control that takes so much mental fortitude for the person at the helm. Because of course, with all of this, you know, all of these lives are depending on me. You want to have so much control, but you cannot maintain as much control and grow. And, and so I had to do the mental work to allow that I was going to have less control. And what that work looked like for me was really realizing that I am not the savior. <laughs> Like, I am not the savior, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and realizing that, you know, I'm invited into this entire movement. Like, I get to be invited into this beautiful thing, like into this awakening of humanity, into living, you know, a more mindful and more awake life. I get to be invited into this, but I'm not required. And I really made peace with that. Like, Annie Grace is not required. This will happen. This has been happening. All these ideas have been coming. This time has been coming. People are rising up everywhere. This will happen with or without me. I am invited and not required. And that, that changed really everything for me. And I'd say it to myself over and over and over. And the thing about like the brain is the brain can change neuroplasticity, obviously, but not if you're telling yourself something you don't believe. So like I had yeah. started this journey trying to change my thoughts, but with, with things I didn't believe, right? I would be saying like, you're not responsible for them. But I didn't believe that. I, I believed that I was responsible for them. Yeah. But then when I realized that like, actually, you know, I had to, I had to start with like baby steps in my thinking. And I had to find things that I could actually believe to change my thinking. And, you know, I, one of those things was that if I burn out, none of this is going to move forward. Yeah. So I'm going to have to give all of it up, right? And it's such a funny goal. But my main goal was to be playful. 
And so I started doing just things like every time we had a team meeting, I'd be like, okay, who has a funny YouTube video? And we still do it to this day. Every Friday, we all play funny YouTube videos. Every time I'd find myself in a moment of stress, I think when you are trying to, when you see something that you don't like in yourself and you are trying to move away from it, you almost have to move away from it and like you have to be intentional to the point of it being awkward. Like, yes. yeah, it was awkward for me to stop the meetings and be like, okay, who's finding like the <laughs> right. Chuck Testa video on YouTube? And right? everyone's like, like is it she was... okay? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, especially because I'd been like this, like hard, like where's, you know, and all of a sudden here I am. And by the way, I, it's not feeling natural to me yet either. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was like that, that scarcity, that urgency, I would just force myself. So every time I felt scarcity, I would write a check to whether it was a cause or a charity or like if I felt any niggle of that, mm. I would give money away. Just like tens of thousands of dollars, just give it away. Like every time I felt it, I would give it away. Every time I felt competitiveness, I would literally force myself to call that person, reach out to that person and just like get myself into a really wholehearted space and just 100% congratulate. Just be so excited for them and find out how I could make their success more. How can I support you? And like, just like, forcing myself the other way it was hard it was super hard but it was like I had to do it yeah I had to do it because otherwise it's like the amount of uh, that animating energy of of scarcity and saviorship and everything like in order to unwind that I had to intentionally like go the other way because by the way what was on the line the whole thing was on the line the whole thing was on the line because I'd made this promise to my husband and, and that's kind of was the process. And it took time. I mean, I think it was, and I, I did a lot of like personal development thing. I did this emotionally focused course. I did, you know, all these sorts of things, like really looking into who, who I was, what was my brain thinking. And I heard this thing that the organization only grows as fast as the owner grows. And it changed very slowly. So I would say 30 days out of the month, old me, all 30 days, that black, intense, frantic mm-hmm. energy, right? Mm-hmm. First year, I'd maybe get three or four days of kind of like, oh, I'm not forcing the playfulness. I actually feel kind of playful. Second year, I'd maybe get two weeks out of the month, right? Third year, I was really at three weeks out of the month. And now I'm pretty much four years into this. And I'm like, okay, there will be a few days a month where I get sucked back into the void. But I'm really aware. And, And by the way, I like stop what I'm doing. And I have it written into our company values and it's called selflessly selfish, that you cannot bring that energy into the business. If you do, stop, stop, go for a walk, turn off your computer. I don't care if you're missing a deadline. Go get yourself back into a space of positive animating energy before you come back. Because what I realized as this happened is I would look at the times that I was spending in this really positive energy. I was getting more done. I, I was more that's effective. The, that's the weird part. It was part, amazing. Right? And so now here I am, you know, our podcast just cost 11 million downloads. We're like um, at 750,000 book sales. I just like got to pause on that. That's incredible. (laughs) And uh, not from a business standpoint, also that, yes, but 750,000 people have a different way of approaching how this massive cultural thing. Yeah, it's so cool. Alcohol. It's so cool. So it worked and it was funny because it does not feel like it's going to actually work. It does not feel like there should ever be an inverse relationship with growth and stress. We've been conditioned like everything else that, you know, you got to burn yourself out, that you got to work as hard as possible. And now, you know, my days look so different. I have so much margin in my days. Like I have like a two hour break after this. I exercise literally almost every single day. I meditate almost every day, twice a day. I walk my kid to school in the morning, like, but I've really focused on like the things that only I can do. And, and then the hours I'm putting in, they just have so much more value, right? Now, a conversation we wanted since before we started the show. It took some time to make it happen because he was working on another tour and we got him finally. Yeah, Rob Bell, we were, there, there was a, a whoop that went up when his schedule opened up and uh, he, he, could, he could 
make it work. And, you know, of course he did it from the, did it from the house in back where he cuts his podcast most of the time and where so much great work has, has emanated. And it was right as the tour was starting. And I had the privilege um, of being one of the early stops on the tour here in Detroit. And I, I will say, if you have not seen the show yet, please gift yourself this in 2022 it is uh, i'm not giving away any secrets here he talks about it in the in our show and he's talked about it as he's warmed people up for for this particular tour but you know he's he says that a, a rob bell show was a night that was had a beginning and a middle and an end he had an arc he had the beats he knew how many minutes it was and he threw all of that away because it was time for something new and that evening with him um was an evening of co-creation of him and the audience, a feeling of being so extraordinarily present and available um, to each other, each in your own space. But he just like opened up this incredible room for, for everybody to come together. Um, he definitely gave us a lot of that in this conversation and just really grateful that we could, that we could host that this year. Yeah. I, I wanted to speak with Rob. I've had a, a couple of conversations with him in my career. And he is just someone who I go to again and again for grounding and clarity on what actually matters. He's got such a almost subversive way of approaching life. And we talked about contentment and what is enough because for me, those are the big themes in the past year. And man, he, this conversation was more therapeutic for me than any therapy I've done this year. It just really set me on a different track as I'm approaching my work. So here's Rob Bell. So back to this enough, enough in this striving versus being content tension and what does enough do you feel more often than not like you have enough I have enough are enough and what does that look like to you like both on the outside and the inside wide open spaces I don't rush I only do if I actually only do a few things and I'm not, this is what I'm doing today, talking to you. <laughs> I only do a few things, and there's lots of wide open space and time to be, and I don't rush places, and I don't try to fit things in, and yeah. I'm not busy. So, wow. and I completely reject the idea. Someone says, you get this one life, you better do something with it. Get out of my face right now. Get out. That's all, that's all scarcity. It's all, an in, it's all a warped relationship with time because it puts all sorts of anxiety on a person that somehow time is supposed to deliver a thing as opposed to just being here. So if you clean up your relationship with time, we're not trying to cram a bunch of things in before we die. We're trying to be here and be healthy and be present and be centered. And then ever so gradually, we'll have a sense of what's next. Yeah. And then we'll do it. And then we'll get the next sense. And as opposed to these tensions about, do you want to do more? Do you want to do less? Was that too much? Those are, those are signs of life. Do you want to go to another city? Do you want, like, you're going to write a second book. Okay, let's write a second book. Is the second book actually not time for like okay? Like of course that's all the that's all the grit and that's all the back and forth of this incarnation. So as opposed to what's wrong with me, I, you're learning how to be Laura. So 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 notice how your second book you learned how in your first book how to write a book, but the second book isn't the first book. You may have to toss everything you learned cuz the second book might be of a completely you and then you, the musculature from the first book is kind of helpful, but then you're also starting all over again. You're going to learn all of this. So everything from the past is kind of helpful, 
but there may be things you did in the first book that actually get in the way of what you're trying to do with the second book. All you can ever do is be present to the second book and see what it wants to be. So if we slow down and we don't need time to deliver certain things to us. So what happened in the Industrial Revolution with the eight-hour workday and with, is that time came to be seen as units that were good to produce things as opposed to time as a con- understanding time as a construct of the mind to make sense of things. And it's real. Like we, this was 10 a.m. today, my time we talked. So that's real. And yet it's also not absolute. So my prediction is that in the next 10 years, you're going to see more and more people realize that the way they've been thinking about time wasn't actually helpful or accurate. You're going to see a, a revolution in how people understand time. I think COVID did a wonderful job of showing people oh, you can slow it way down. You can take away tons of things and all that wide open space is actually filled with all sorts of interesting things. Um, You have more people talking about the eternal now. You have more people talking about being present. You have more people talking about meditation. This This is all beautiful, but it's all in some ways detoxifying us from this go do the work and time. Two hours of work gets you that much money, gets you that much stuff. Like it's not all a transaction. Um, that's tyranny too. Wow. Yes, yes, exactly. So you can see how these <clears throat> patterns are so deep sort of in the, the neurology of people, you know, their brains have been. Oh, totally. We, it's like, it's so invisible. I mean, we don't even, it's the water. We don't even, it's like, wait, what? We don't. Uh, you have to like drag the fish up on the beach and be like, Hey, that look at that. Look back at where you just, that thing you were just in. Yeah. Yeah. So I love your question about content. You have something in front of you that takes, that you are giving your energies to. It is got all of that lovely mix of challenge and joy. You're not bored. You're not buried. And it's sustainable. And whatever it brings you, we're like, woo, that took a lot. Like this past weekend, the whole new show, the travel, all the weird COVID stuff. Like, like I'm tired today. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm talking to you. And then my son and I, are, I'm going to go over to my son's house. Then he and I are going to go to Home State, our, one of our favorite taco places. And then we're going to listen to some new mixes of songs he's been recording. Then I'm going to go pick my daughter up from school. Like it's going to be the, and then I got some other, I got an idea for the next Robcast, and um, I'm going to make some notes on that. And then I got this, I'm trying to explain, I'm trying to say it. I am saying it like it actually is. So when your question of what's enough, it's, it's wonderful. All right, now we come back to the place we started with Peter Rollins. I can't help but notice how many times our conversations kept exploring this idea that there is no guru. Yeah, really. I mean, it's certainly where we are as we make this podcast, you know, and and I know it's something that we've talked about and that that we're going to be carrying into the new year, you know, that there is this, there's, there's, there's a paradox in our culture. Uh, that I think is really important that we have to think independently, right? Ask your own questions, consider a range of options. But then there's also having the humility to be open to people who have things to share that we should consider. There's a real attack on authority and people who have done the work and who have acquired wisdom or or who have knowledge. And then at the same time, we 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 do have to go out and 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 inquire and, and think independently. And that's a difficult paradox to hold right now. I know our culture wants us to fight intensely about it. And one of the things that I love the most about making Tell Me Something True is continuing to hold the space for, for both things to be apparent. This is Peter Rollins. The best guru is a guru who reveals that they're not a guru. The last guru is the guru who reveals that they were just someone there helping you come 
to this understanding yourself. Mm-hmm. I always worry when you meet someone who, who does the opposite, who actually pretends they are the subject supposed to know, the subject who has all of the answers and all of that. That's the problem. Yes. But what you do need is if you can find someone who's qualified, who plays that role, and then the last act of that game is where they go, and by the way, I didn't do any of this. You did it. This was really fun, Michael. I loved thinking about these shows again. Uh, Do you want to share some of what's coming up in 2022, which by the way, feels so good to say. So good to say. Put it in the shredder and let's just keep moving. (laughs) Yes, we have some shows, some conversations, some people that you may have discovered already and some that I know that we're going to be introducing you to. We have Jamie Lee Finch, who is an extraordinary thinker and writer. She's in her own way recovering from purity culture. And we have this conversation about how our bodies are a person and why that can change everything for how we live. We're going to have our first ever repeating guest. And Helen Peterson is going to be coming back with her partner, Charlie Warzel. They've got a new book that's out and they're talking about the future of work and what we've learned or what we have not learned and mistakes that we may be carrying forward from the pandemic. So that's definitely something you're going to want to stick around for. And Helen Peterson's conversation with us was one of the most commented ones that we've had on uh, so far. And then Jill Louise Busby, who has this incredible book called Unfollow Me, um, is going to be on in the first couple months of the new year. I really hope you find this book, Unfollow Me. Get it, read it, share it. She's going to be talking about what a life that has had these extraordinary moments uh, that came from, she self-described as having this this moment of internet micro-fame and and what she's learned from all of that and how it's changed her as a person. So she's just got a lot to share. And she's also really damn funny and a great conversationalist. I can't wait for that one. All right, folks. Thank you so much for being with us today and for this last half year. Your presence and support has meant the world to us. I hope you'll consider becoming a TMS team member. A very small amount of support every month from a whole bunch of TMST listeners will allow us to keep making this show. It's commercial free and we really want to keep it that way. So listener support is what makes that possible. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members only events, and access to our community where I hang out a lot, especially now that I'm not on social media. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time and next year at Tell Me Something True. 